Hello, and welcome to The Corporate Casket, a semi-weekly series where bad businesses go to die. We will discuss any and everything from bad charities, terrible CEOs, and people that have a lot to hide. Now, today's episode is both a corporate casket and in a way, a prism of the past too. We're gonna be talking about Eastern Airlines today, their growth throughout their jet age, the controversy surrounding them, and the new Eastern Airline that's been restarted in the past couple of years. Airlines rise, falls, crashes, all that stuff are really, really interesting things to me. So I'm happy that I was able to bring some of it to the channel finally. So with all of that being said, let's get into Eastern Airlines' very unique and complicated history. The history of Eastern begins in the 1920s when it was founded under a different name, Pitcairn Airlines. A young engineer, Harold F. Pitcairn, was developing an interest in aviation. He started off as an apprentice with the Curtis Aeroplane and Motor Company and eventually toward the end of the First World War began his flight training. Around 1924, he established the Pitcairn Flying School and Passenger Service and grew a thriving mail service business. Around the same time, Juan de Ciavera, a Spanish aeronautical engineer, had developed the articulated motor, resulting in the world's first successful flight of a rotary wing aircraft. He continued to refine his invention and in 1926 founded the Sierra Auto Grio Company. A couple years later, Juan and Harold's paths collided as Harold became fascinated with Auto Grios and the idea of vertical flight. Auto Grios are a bit different from what you might picture when you think of a normal plane. As one source explains, Sierra knew that an airplane wing provides lift, but only as it moves forward through the air. He wondered if a rotating wing circling freely over a conventional aircraft would also confer lift as it moved forward. If the engine stopped, he reasoned that the wind effect on the rotor would act as a parachute, making it a safe, nearly vertical landing possible. Sierra called this basic design concept an auto griot, and it would be the basis for all his subsequent work. The new design interested Harold enough that he purchased the rights to manufacture the Sierra Auto Griot in the US in 1928. A new age of aeronautical development was born that year, and Pitcairn wanted to do more with these interesting planes. He formed the PCA, the Pitcairn Sierra Auto Griot Company, but in order to fund it, he had one massive asset he needed to sell his mail delivery company. Clement Keyes bought it from him and renamed the company Easter Air Transport. A few years later, it became Eastern Airlines. Keyes himself was no stranger to the aviation business. As a financier, he founded aviation companies such as Curtis Wright, China National Aviation Corporation, North American Aviation, and TWA. He's even been called the father of commercial aviation in America. So if anyone was experienced enough to take over Harold's mail service company, it would be Keyes. In June, 1929, Keyes bought all of Pitcairn Aviation shares for $2.5 million, then resold them to North American Aviation just two weeks later. Now the history of Eastern Airlines, as we know, truly begins. Not much is said about Eastern from my sources when it comes to the early 30s. However, in 1938, Eastern was thrust into the limelight thanks to the leadership of Captain Eddie Rickenbacker. Rickenbacker to this day is pretty widely credited for bringing Eastern into a new chapter. Eddie was both an automobile racer and a World War I volunteer fighter pilot. He tried multiple times unsuccessfully to open up his own auto company. However, in part because of his fame, Eddie still did incredibly well for himself. According to one source, 
1933, he moved to GM as vice president for public relations of its aeronautics division, which then included Eastern Air Transport, soon called Eastern Airlines. Eddie was appointed general manager of Eastern Airlines on January 1st, 1935. By 1938, Eddie had turned Eastern Airlines into a successful venture for GM. When he learned that GM planned to sell Eastern, Eddie raised $3.5 million in one month to purchase Eastern. At the time, just prior to the Second World War, all airlines in the United States used government subsidies to stay financially sound. The only government monies accepted in Eastern's coffers came from air mail contracts, money Eastern was willing to sacrifice in the interest of building its empire. Eddie vowed to wean Eastern off of the subsidies and did so in 1939 when he put in a sealed bid for $0 of carrying the mails across South Texas. His reward was that he secured another leg of his dream route across the US's Southern tier and into Mexico. Throughout the 40s and 50s, Eastern Airlines was the most profitable airline in the country, in large part due to Eddie. Thomas Armstrong, the president of the company at the time, was said to be more of a figurehead while all important decisions were still made through Eddie Rickenbacker. Of course, all good things must come to an end though. And by the late 50s, Eddie's ideas began to age. He insisted they use turboprop planes instead of jet planes when jet planes were becoming all the rage and led the way in aircraft design. Turboprops are more economical on shorter flights. However, at higher speeds, they can't compare to jet engines. Eventually, Eddie retired in 1963 and the company continued on without him. According to Silver Liners, In 1967, EAL began flying passengers to the Bahamas and to Seattle on the West Coast. The company also expanded into the Caribbean in 1971 by acquiring a small Puerto Rican company known as Carabair. Eastern inaugurated its first coast-to-coast flight in 1969. In the 1970s, Eastern's big purchase was that of European Airbus A300. Airbus had tried unsuccessfully to break into the US market for many years. After Airbus offered a very generous deal to Eastern, Eastern's new president, former NASA astronaut Frank Borman, agreed to buy 23 of the new jets in the spring of 1978. Eastern had been the official airline of Disney World in the 70s, so you'd think that they'd be doing fantastic. Most people flying to Disney World would choose Eastern and multiple pages of ads from Eastern would be featured in National Geographic magazines back in those days. You'd think that they'd be doing absolutely fantastic at the time, but nothing could be further from the truth. This wasn't because of any one particular reason, but rather a series of poor choices and unfortunate circumstances. Back in the 70s, not only was Eastern's massive Atlanta hub in direct competition with Delta Airlines, but they were struggling through deregulation, just as we will see in the future with an episode on Pan Am. In Pan Am's case, they prided themselves on being a luxury flagship liner that could no longer compete when deregulation allowed everyone to fly affordably. And that's an extremely summarized version of events, but like I said, Pan Am is an entirely separate episode on its own. For Eastern Airlines, however, they struggled with the competition when, especially after all of these recent purchases, they were in debt. And don't get me wrong, Eastern tried to keep up, they genuinely did, but it just wasn't enough. And tensions between management and labor unions was high. Frank Borman, the astronaut turned company president at that time, desperately tried to bring the company back into the limelight it had two decades earlier, but his purchases only pushed them further into debt. Airline Files writes, in 1983, Eastern became the launch customer of Boeing 757, which was ordered in 1978. Borman felt that its low cost of operation would make it an invaluable asset to bring the airline in the years to come. 
However, higher oil prices failed to materialize and the debt created by this purchase coupled with the Airbus A300 purchases in 1977 contributed to the February 1986 sale to Frank Lorenzo's Texas Air. At that time, Eastern was paying over $700,000 in interest each day before they sold a ticket, fueled or boarded a single aircraft. I just can't even begin to imagine that amount of debt. It's so hard to wrap my head around it. $700,000 a day. So needless to say, the company was losing money, the debt kept growing, and this is what spelled the beginning of the end for Eastern. If you ask me, they were simply too late into entering the jet age so that by the time they did, they just couldn't keep up. In what seemed like a Hail Mary attempt to keep the company alive, Eastern began offering what they dubbed moonlight specials or extremely cheap, no frills overnight flights. Personally, I think this really showed how desperate they were. Pan Am prided themselves on being luxurious and here Eastern prided themselves on being associated with family vacations thanks to their massive association with Disney. Hell, their slogan at the time was even, we've got your sunshine. A bit ironic then, had they been open to these moonlight specials, you know, trying to earn a couple extra dollars, but I digress. From what I can tell, these seem to harm Eastern's reputation more than help. Even though I personally think it's fantastic that Eastern was able to offer affordable flights to elderly people, those that needed cheap flights in an emergency and the like. Even Eastern's own spokesperson called it almost a cult, aliens and weirdos when referencing the pre-dawn journeys. One hell of a spokesperson, am I right? One New York Times article at the time wrote, what kind of travelers intentionally fly in the dead of night? It's a cross section of families, college kids, illegal aliens, and weirdos from LA, said Bunny Duck, an Eastern flight attendant for 15 years. Predictably, Eastern's rivals sniff at the notion that the moonlight is serious competition. Our primary focus is on the frequent flyers and they seldom travel during the wee hours of the morning, said Matt Gonning, a spokesperson for United Airlines. Even though these moonlight specials did bring in new business to Eastern, it wasn't enough to save them from the millions of debt they were paying every week. Frank Lorenzo, owner of Texas Airlines, had to step in and buy their majority share holdings just to keep Eastern afloat. However, before we talk about Texas Airlines and the chaos of the 80s, I wanna talk about one of their most infamous plane crashes. In part, simply because what happened is unusual and because it's listed as the first fatal crash of a wide body aircraft. Flight 401, which took flight December 29th, 1972. Now, before we get into the crash that happened with Eastern Airlines, more specifically Flight 401, I wanna preface this by stating that I understand fatal accidents, crashes, and even hijackings were far more commonplace in the early days of commercial airplanes. Now, if we hear about a crash or a hijacking, it's relatively rare. That's why I'm not about to get into every crash Eastern has had back in the early days before regulation. It was a general airline problem. However, Flight 401 was particularly infamous. I'm in tower during Eastern 401, just turned on final. Eastern 401 heavy, continue approach to nine left. Continue approach, Roger. According to Aviation Safety's website, Flight 401 departed the JFK airport in New York at 2120 EST for a flight to Miami. The flight was uneventful until the approach to Miami. After selecting gear down, the nose gear light didn't indicate down and locked. Even after recycling the gear, the light still didn't illuminate. At 2234, the crew called Miami Tower and were advised to climb to 2000 feet and hold. At 2337, the captain instructed the second officer to enter the forward electronics bay below the flight deck to check visually the alignment of the nose gear indices. Meanwhile, the flight crew continued their attempts to free the nose gear position light lens from its retainer without success. 
The second officer was directed to descend into the electronics bay again at 2338, and the captain and first officer continued discussing the gear position, light lens assembly, and how it might have been reinserted incorrectly. At 23, 40, and 38 seconds, a half second C chord sounded in the cockpit, indicating a plus or minus 250 foot deviation in the selected altitude. None of the crew members commented on the warning and no action was taken. A little later, the Eastern Airlines maintenance specialist occupying the forward observer seat went into the electronics bay to assist the second officer with the operation of the nose wheel well light. So to basically summarize these early events, when the pilots tried to lower the landing gear, the small green light that would indicate if the nose wheel was locked down didn't come on. Then as they were busy trying to replace this bulb, thinking it was burned out, one of the pilots bumped into the control column, turning off the automatic pilot setting. When the plane slowly began to descend and the noise went off in the cockpit as a sign, hey, the plane's going down, the crew was literally too busy fixing the light to even notice. Especially in this paper, The Sun Sentinel, when you word the story that way, the pilots sound, well, frankly, incompetent. I'm not saying they were. Frankly, this new L1011 model plans were extremely buggy, particularly with the engines. Even though Aircraft 310, the one they were flying, seemed to be less buggy than its sister ships, it was only a four-month-old plane that had a few issues here and there already. Without that light on, they had to try and find another way to confirm that the gear was down. And as other sources explain, Captain Robert Loft had no way of hearing or paying attention to that noise indicator as he, pilot Stockstill and flight attendant Donald Repo tried to access the forward avionics bay. A space between the flight deck more commonly called the hell hole. According to my source, Loft was losing patience with the effort to remove the jammed light. Again, he ordered Repo into the avionics bay below. To hell with this, he said, to hell with this. Go down and see if it's lined up. That's all we care. Fuck around with that goddamn 20 cent piece of light equipment we got on this bastard. The cockpit voice recorder picked up the sound of laughter. It's clear the crew viewed the malfunction not so much as an emergency as an annoyance. At 11.38 PM, Loft calmly spoke into the microphone to the controller. Eastern 401, I'll go uh, out west just a little further if we can here and uh, see if we can get this light to come on here. A flight coming in ahead of 401, flight 607, had been experiencing landing problems. They were given more attention as their problem was seen as a real emergency, far more important than some faulty light. 607 landed successfully, thankfully, but the tower was handling other planes coming in while 401's altitude fell, and only 11 seconds after the first officer realized this, it crashed. The location was west-northwest of Miami. The elevation was eight feet above sea level in the Everglades. The terrain was flat marshland on which sawgrass grew to heights of three to 10 feet high in six to 12 inches of water. The plane was traveling 227 miles per hour when it flew into the ground. The left wing tip hit first, then the left engine and left landing gear. Together, they slashed three rails through the sawgrass with five feet wide, more than 100 feet long. When the main part of the fuselage hit the ground, it continued to move through the grass and water, disintegrating as it went. From first impact to last movement, the Whisper liner traveled more than one third of a mile. Midway along the path, the plane slewed around until it was sliding backwards. The great white fuselage burst into five large pieces and countless fragments. Experts believe that the shallow water prevented the L1011 plane from bursting into flames. Tragically, many passengers did die on impact. Others found themselves trapped in the seats in the swamp. Others were injured and trapped in the wreckage. Now, although I don't know a ton about Frank Borman, as I mostly focus on the company itself today, 
I wanna say that his actions are probably some of the most incredible I've seen from a company executive. Though granted, I talk about a lot of horrible businesses, so the bar is pretty low here. But it is still worth mentioning that Frank actually went directly to the scene to help in rescuing people. Like whether or not he didn't do very well with Eastern Airlines' debt, he at least did this much. He's received awards from NASA. He's an aeronautical engineer, an astronaut, sure, that's incredibly impressive. But to hear that he actually went to the scene of the crash, I thought that was worth mentioning because even in a corporate casket episode, people can still surprise you. But back to flight 401. In the end, the National Transportation Safety Board blamed the accident on the crew's failure to monitor its instruments in the last minutes of flight. As a result of the crash, better altitude warning and terrain clearance systems were installed in airliners. Air traffic controllers devised a better system of recognizing when a plane is in trouble. And other pilots learned to never focus on a problem so much that they forget to fly their planes. Somebody flies the airplane all the time now, said McNeese, an air traffic controller working in the Miami International Airport control tower the night of the incident. In that 401 crash, too many eyes were on the light bulb. 101 people out of the 176 on board passed away as the result of the crash. I don't wanna speculate too much and say that this contributed to their downfall because again, crashes and hijackings were more common by today's standards. One hijacking in particular that took place in March, 1970 was especially notable and had a lasting effect on how we see plane security. Boston Globe article tells the story in great detail and that will obviously be in my sources if you'd like to read more on it, but just a quick gist. More than 50 US flights have been hijacked in the previous two years. In 1969 alone, Eastern Airlines has been targeted 10 times. Yet all those so-called skyjackings had ended peacefully with no fatalities. The hijackers would typically demand money and command the pilot to fly to Fidel Castro's Cuba where they hoped to find asylum. Skyjackings were so common that the airlines seemed to treat them as little more than a nuisance. Even passengers didn't seem too put out. In exchange for the inconvenience, they would typically get bottomless drinks and a story of adventure they could tell for the rest of their days. However, during Eastern Flight 1320 from Newark to Boston, things were a little different. These skyjackings were rarely deadly, but the hijacker in this case didn't seem to want money. The pilot told the man they were low on fuel, but the hijacker said, just fly east and let me know when we're within two or three minutes of running out of fuel. Not exactly just an inconvenience anymore. The hijacker shot people on board, leaving one injured and another co-pilot James Hartley dead. This became the first hijacking in the US that turned fatal. The hijacker was charged with murder, but took his own life while in prison. After this, hijackings were taken far more seriously now that people recognized they could result in loss of life. So while hijackings and crashes had been more common, the flight of 1320 and 401 certainly weren't good looks for Eastern. And it was a tragic reminder how quickly these things can go wrong. Now, before we get back to looking at Eastern's last days as a company and their slow and painful demise, let's take a quick break to thank today's sponsors. It's time to talk about one of my favorite sponsors today, which is HelloFresh. You guys know them, love them, I love them. Let's talk about them. HelloFresh cuts out stressful meal planning and grocery trip stores with fresh food, like pre-prepped, ready to go, in a box delivered to your front door every single week. It's really simple. They have a nice app that's really easy to use, very user-friendly, and you get to choose from 50 menu and market items each week, from vegetarian meals to craft burgers, extra special gourmet options, everything's literally available. And you get what you want every week, take a look at it, meal prep your way through, and it's so easy, takes the hassle out of deciding, what am I gonna eat tonight? Well, you already know. And if you're like me and you suck at cooking, it gives you an opportunity to pretend you know what you're doing in the kitchen for once. 
And this summer, HelloFresh has everything you need to even get grilling with grilling bundles, including burger packs, surf and turf packs, and more, which means less shopping and more sizzles. So if you wanna get started with HelloFresh today, make sure to go to hellofresh.com casket14 and use code casket14 for up to 14 free meals, including free shipping. Again, make sure to go to hellofresh.com casket14 and use code casket14 for up to 14 free meals, including free shipping. Today's episode is also sponsored by Purple. Doesn't it seem like the world's kind of against us from getting a good night's sleep this time of year? It's hot, it's uncomfortable, I hate it. You gotta sleep with one foot out of the covers, but then you know the thing under the bed's gonna grab your ankle so it can't be too far, but now you're too hot. I know the deal, trust me, I do it almost every night. But as of recent, at least my head's been a little comfier because I got myself a purple pillow and they got a whole mattress to go with it too. What's really cool about Purple is you can sleep cool and comfortable no matter what the world throws at you. That's because only Purple mattresses have the grid. It's a unique ventilated design that allows air to flow through and help you sleep cool, even when it feels like it's a thousand degrees outside. And the grid is amazingly supportive for your back and legs while cushioning your shoulders, neck, and hips, no matter how you sleep. And I hate to be the bearer of amazing news for you, but the pillow is Casper approved. This little ham likes to steal my pillow from me and use it. And since most of you guys know he's a Samoyed, so he's an Arctic sled dog, he needs to stay cool and comfy and he steals the damn thing from me. So I know it's good. So if you wanna try your purple mattress risk-free with free shipping and returns and financing is available too if you need it, make sure to go to purple.com casket and use promo code casket. Again, that's purple.com slash casket, promo code casket for 10% off any order of $200 or more. Purple.com slash casket, promo code casket. Terms apply. Now let's get back to talking about Eastern. Through a series of bad purchases and debts had landed Eastern in some bad standing. Some sources credit Frank Lorenzo with ultimately being the actual death of Eastern Airlines. In 1986, when he stepped in, corporate America believed his stubborn approach would whip Eastern Airlines back into shape. Lorenzo was a ruthless empire builder, and perhaps that's exactly what Eastern needed, right? Well, not exactly. Eastern didn't need an empire builder. They needed someone to help maintain and renew an already existing airline. Building a company and maintaining one are two very separate things. Not to mention his tough approach and mountains of debt meant he resorted to intimidating employees to work harder while cutting wages. As one source puts it, at Continental, another airline he ran, once known for its quality service, Lorenzo created an airline with embittered workers who disliked their jobs almost as much as passengers disliked flying on their planes. When Lorenzo applied similar tactics at Eastern, he soon found he had stepped into the hornet's nest. Instead of trying to make peace with the carrier's employees who had fueled for years with one another and with Frank Borman, Eastern's previous chairman, Lorenzo struck out harder and harder until finally, Eastern's workers were willing to sacrifice their jobs to get rid of him. And that's exactly what they did. The workers went on strike just a couple years after Lorenzo took charge. There were a few factors leading up to this. The first took place right around the time Lorenzo took charge when the Federal Aviation Administration or the FAA fined Eastern $9.5 million for safety violations. The most serious charge was that Eastern conducted numerous flights with two Boeing 727 planes using a landing gear part that was supposed to have been removed from the fleet. Given how even a very small malfunction or airplane part can lead to a horrific crash, as we saw with flight 401, this absolutely should have been taken seriously on Eastern's part. The landing gear on one of these Boeing planes did actually collapse in a landing at one point, though thankfully no one was injured. 
The majority of the charges as published by the Orlando Sentinel at the time had to do with their failure to keep proper records on maintenance. In a letter to Eastern last week, the federal agency said it was proposing to impose $9.5 million in fines for 78,000 individual violations. Now, Eastern was reported to have said that about 60% of those charges were inaccurate. But even if that's true, that the majority of the charges were inaccurate, the fact that there were still thousands of violations is obviously worrying. Interestingly enough, some sources say it was actually the pilots that brought attention to these regulatory problems in the first place. This source claims, almost immediately after taking control, Lorenzo began demanding unions take pay cuts and change working rules. He pushed pilots to work while sick and ignore FAA flight time regulations. And attempted to get around maintenance regulations. The pilots started a campaign, Max Safety, to bring attention to these safety violations, gaining national attention and bringing EAL, Eastern Airlines, under FAA scrutiny. Lorenzo also began to sell Eastern assets to Continental for less than they were worth, damaging Eastern's ability to make a profit while blaming EAL's financial problems on the high price of labor. Meanwhile, tension continued to build on EAL properties with the other unions as well, but under the Railway Labor Act, which governs the airline industry, unions cannot strike until they have been given thorough arbitration and a 30-day cooling off period has passed. In 1987, the IAM, International Association of Machinists, went into contract negotiations and arbitration dragged on for two years, during which time Lorenzo tried to force a strike to remove the unions, spending EAL money, training, replacement machinists, flight attendants, and pilots. The IAM refused to bait, however, and Lorenzo couldn't keep spending money training replacements and was forced to back down. So I do have to give some massive credit to the pilots that knew these safety violations simply weren't acceptable and called Eastern out for their behavior. However, it was the workers that later suffered for Eastern's misdeeds. In 1988, Eastern announced that they were going to go back to their roots and cut service in several Western cities, laying off over 4,000 employees. At this time, Eastern said they were losing $1 million a day and couldn't make profits unless their workers agreed to pay cuts too. So between the layoffs, pay cuts, and Lorenzo's management, saying things were tense would be a bit of an understatement. Eastern's workers are so discouraged, observed William Bethel, who since 1955 has operated the Field Shop, a store that sells airport uniforms and accessories. The airline used to be one of the best in business, almost like a family, and now there's nothing but bitterness. The next year on March 4th, 1989, things came to a head. The IAM or International Association of Machinists were on strike, but things truly took a turn for the worst when one of the pilots of Eastern Airlines walked out and held the line for 285 days. Continually, the cost of paying their employees was cited as the reason they couldn't make a profit. And now Eastern truly couldn't make any money without any workers that wanted to put up with them. Lorenzo failed the company so miserably that he had no choice but to declare bankruptcy only five days after 3,400 of their 3,600 pilots walked. Lorenzo tried to save the company by relaunching Eastern as a smaller airline, selling all their most profitable assets, such as their shuttle service, reservation system, planes, routes, and gates. Tonight, the Eastern shuttle is no more. Tomorrow morning, it will be the Trump shuttle that services air commuters between Boston, New York, and Washington. You had other people wanting this very much, as we all know, and it was just really a nice victory. It was a very sweet victory. There was a festive atmosphere as the Trump Organization staged a media event complete with champagne and fancy hors d'oeuvres to mark the maiden flights of its latest acquisition. Passengers approved of the new look. He's a class operator. Anything he puts his hands on turns to gold. Oddly enough, it was actually Trump that purchased the Eastern shuttle service for $365 million. 
Unsurprisingly though, he couldn't save the failing airline either. And within 18 months, the airline lost over $125 million. According to Barbara Peterson from the CN Traveler, I flew a couple times on the Trump shuttle in its final days and the flights themselves were perfectly pleasant. In the lounge-like gate areas, you could pick up a free newspaper or snack. In flight, there were bagel breakfasts in the morning and complimentary cocktails with boxed meals later in the day. But what I also recall on a flight from DC to New York was that I was barely into my chicken Caesar salad and Chardonnay when the prepare for landing call came from the cockpit. The not so glamorous reality is that it was a 45 minute flight and about 20 of those minutes were spent getting up and down from cruising altitude. The service was classy, yes, but it was sort of like having the 21 Club cater a Greyhound bus trip. It was an aesthetic success, but it was not a financial one. Then, thanks in part to the Gulf War and wartime fears, fuel prices, and heightened airport security, airline patronage dropped not long after Trump purchased the shuttle service. By 1991, the Trump Organization announced they would close a deal whereby Northwest Airlines would operate the shuttle and assume the first $245 million first mortgage. A few months later, another failing airline, Pan Am, was bought by Delta and Northwest announced the deal was off. The union representing 160 Trump mechanics, ramp workers, and baggage loaders had balked, demanding pay and benefits, partly with their counterparts at Northwest. Because such an allowance would have increased operating costs, Alfred Chechi, co-chairman of Northwest, asked Trump to reduce the price. Obviously forgetting his 1989 attempt to buy the shuttle at a discount, Trump refused. Trump then announced that the shuttle was doing okay and that maybe he wouldn't sell after all. Yet months later in December, 1991, the shuttle was sold to US Air. Although Trump said in interviews that he made a couple bucks, it is estimated that around $128 million was lost in total. Former employees haven't spoken badly about the business though. One man, David Manley, claims that at least the airline genuinely took care of their employees, something that certainly didn't seem to be true under Lorenzo. According to him, when his wife had breast cancer, the CEO said, any bills that aren't covered, just leave them on my desk. I left some bills on those desks, David states. It was like, I don't know, a $30,000 pharmacy bill. You know, that's how I was treated. And I'm so sure that it came down from Trump. I don't have anything bad to say. Even if it's no secret here that I'm no fan of Trump, and even if it's no secret that his company has lost tens of millions of dollars, at least there seems to be some employees that can look back on that time fondly and were treated well. As for Eastern, by the time the pilots ended their strike in November, 1989, there were no jobs left to return to. Still, many pilots considered the strike a victory because even at the sacrifice of their jobs, they saw it that Lorenzo would never work in the airline industry again. He lost Eastern, was forced to sell Continental, and there was, as one man put it, some bitter satisfaction in that. So where did Eastern go? Ultimately, Eastern completely ceased operations in January, 1991. Continental was able to pull themselves out of bankruptcy by accepting a $350 million investment from Charles E. Hurwitz, a controversial Houston entrepreneur. At a glance, these controversies Hurwitz was involved in seemed to be everything from his company Maxim looting a Texas savings and loan and decimating attractive Virgin Redwoods in North San Francisco. So this guy saved Continental while Eastern Air was separated from its parent company, Texas Air Corporation, due to negligence and poor management. Not only had Lorenzo played a massive part in destroying the company with how he treated people, but even in deals between the two companies, he favored Texas Air. According to a 1992 New York Times article, one of the legacies from Eastern was a report prepared by David Shapiro, the examiner appointed by bankruptcy court overseeing Eastern's bankruptcy filing. 
It concluded that in numerous transactions between the two companies, Eastern was shortchanged by Texas Air. The report found, for example, that Texas Air bought assets like System One, a computer reservation system from Eastern at a price far below market value. A person familiar with the current attempt by Continental to reorganize said that an agreement had been filed in bankruptcy court over how to resolve the issues raised by Mr. Shapiro. Eastern, which shut down its operations in January, 1991, is going through the last stages of liquidation. However, Eastern isn't totally dead. Well, sort of. Eastern Airlines Group purchased the intellectual property, including all of the trademarks of the original Eastern Airlines back in 2009. Six years later in 2015, they started to charter flights between Miami and Havana using a Boeing 737-800 plane. They had a few notable moments, such as in September, 2015, when the Boeing plane came to the aid of a stranded cruise ship and passengers at St. Thomas. Around this time, they were even named Miami Athletics official airline. It's a far cry from when they used to be Disney's official airline, but still. It was also an Eastern airplane that flew the body of Muhammad Ali to Louisville for memorial services. Still, Eastern wasn't meant to be. In October, 2016, following a period in which Eastern became stagnant, Ed Weigel stepped down from his position as president and CEO of Eastern Airlines, less than 18 months after the carrier's first flight in May, 2015. This unexpected departure of the airline's founder and a major energy driver brought Eastern Airlines to a list of carriers experiencing senior management changes in 2016. The reasons behind Wiggle's departure were not disclosed, though a number of people have said he was forced out. The next year in June, 2017, Eastern was acquired by Swift Air. They retained Eastern's name, assets, the Boeing 737-800 and associated trademarks. Even messier still in 2018, Dynamic International Airways obtained permits and licensing rights to use Swift Air's intellectual property, allowing Eastern Airlines to take on a third life. And of course, they launched in 2020, which obviously not a great time to be launching an airline. Their inaugural flight was described as underwhelming, and back in May, 2020, they acquired five used Boeing 777s. As of November, 2020, according to one writer at One Mile at a Time, Eastern is an incredibly quirky airline, First of all, it's worth noting that as of now, Eastern hasn't inaugurated service with any of its 777s. Eastern Airlines claims that its goal is to provide the most direct and economical flights to underserved markets around the globe. Historically, the airline primarily operated charter flights, and recently the airline has also been operating relief flights, including to and from destinations like Guatemala, Montevideo, and more. They did have a minor issue with landing gear back in July, 2020, but so far there's not really much happening with the airplanes. Things seem to be pretty quiet, so we're just waiting to see what comes of the new Eastern. I'm not opposed to them having success considering they're not operating under poor management as far as I know. And as long as they can learn from their mistakes, I see no issue with them simply learning from themselves. Even though the name may be the same, everything else seems to be different. Hopefully those involved with reviving Eastern this time around will have a better grasp on how to run an airline than those in the past. If not, then maybe someone will attempt to revive it a fourth time. The name sure doesn't seem to be going anywhere. But with all of that being said, that is where we are going to end today's episode of The Corporate Casket. I hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, make sure that you're liking, following, and subscribing so that you can stay up to date on all the recent episodes. And if you wanna connect with me outside of these episodes, make sure you go to my Linktree link in the description box. It's going to have a nice little easy readout list for all of my social media, including my Twitter, Instagram, Discord server, Twitch, you name it, everything will be there. So again, thank you so much for making it to another episode. I appreciate you being here and I'll see you in the next one. Bye.